This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Everybody, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman, and I'm here with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey! And we are recording once again from the Future Proof Wealth Festival down in Huntington Beach. Today is Tuesday, September thirteenth, two thousand twenty-two, and our third guest in our CIO series today is none other than Phil Huber. Phil is the Chief Investment Officer, hence CIO series, right, uh, for Savant Wealth Management. Uh, he's been in the uh, financial services industry for over fifteen years. And he is a published author. So, Phil, welcome to The Sherman Show. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, lots uh, changed since we last uh, probably had lunch or something in Chicago years back in the olden days. Yeah, back, back <laughs> in the olden days. That's, that's what I was... The, the, yeah. the before time. Yeah, I, I always call it the before times. But also, uh, you know, every time you see somebody, I was like, yeah, I at least haven't seen you in three years because that's been the last time yeah. we've, been, we've been out there, right? So, and I'm, uh, I'm glad we're recording inside. I've gotten like sunburn this week at this outdoor uh, festival, so it's nice to get a little, little break from the sun. Yeah, it's a, it's a little different that Chicago weather. Although I was in Chicago last week, awesome. Yeah, it was that's like, like you know, low 80s. Didn't get shot. I mean, I, everything I was looking for. You know, it's great. So. Yeah, hopefully it's the same thing when I'm out there uh, next week. So yeah, I'll no, try this, bring some good prime, weather with prime me time for Chicago, yeah, and then uh, just stay away for the next nine months. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so. <laughs> Uh, why don't you give us a little intro, how you got in the business, you know, how did you end up uh, transitioning over to Savon as well? Just mm-hmm. get, walk us through the background, the, the life of, in a condensed version. Yeah, so I've I grown up around the independent RA industry my entire life. My father was and is a, a financial advisor. Yeah. He started his own firm in 1988, um, just kind of solo uh, shop. And then eventually that grew and I joined the firm in 2008. Uh, right into the teeth of the financial crisis. I had like I had just a brief year of work experience under my belt at a fund company. And you can probably imagine like starting 07, the mid 08, like it was kind of the, the you know, t- telling of what was to come, like, like layoffs in that in that industry. And then um, the opportunity was there. And, and uh, you know, it was kind of one of those things where I always knew eventually I, my path would lead me to the family business. I didn't know if it would be that soon, but it was a obviously a really challenging environment at that time. But I think a really great time to cut your teeth in the industry and learn really what it's all about. It's it's less about um, managing the investments, which is obviously important, and that's my day job, but managing people, yeah, too, especially in really stressful times. So I think it's always interesting, too, of like what someone's start date is in the industry and, and how, how it influences their uh, beliefs around risk management, diversification, right. all these things. Yeah, like if you started it like right before the... You, you know, know, when I started in 2001, yeah, so yeah. natural, I kind of gravitate to being more the negative, the bond guys, you know, yeah, and stuff no. like that, right, too. And I, I, there has something about that start date because I noticed that when I would see people start in like 04 and we started to have, you know, the, the good returns on the equity market, they were bigger risk takers. I, I just noticed that cohort, there's that anchoring to your start date. Well, it's amazing, too, how short our memories uh, can be, too. And just enough time passes, you sort of forget the lessons learned from the prior <laughs> crisis. And then you got to relearn, relearn them again. Excuse me. And, and you had to relearn them very quickly, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, like you see in this year, right, markets can just smack you upside the head, right? Yeah, so, a lot of it's that emotional memory too, right? Being in, in touch with how you felt during those periods of time, and then how you and trying to recognize how you behave during that uh, time frame as well. Because I started out in two thousand seven, and just you know trying to go back into the memory banks of how you know my my personal emotional behavior was affecting the way I thought about markets during that period, and applying it to what we just seen in you know two thousand twenty, and then perhaps yeah. now again in two thousand twenty two. Well, it's, it's also we were buying closed end funds at like sixty percent discounts. <laughs> you know, so you're buying bond funds that you're like 30, you know, at that point in time. Right? Well, it's funny, too. When I think about like uh, 08, 09, like I was just like wet behind the ears, didn't know much yet. So I didn't realize what a great opportunity that was. And I wasn't like in hindsight, I'm like, man, I should have been aggressively like just like pouring money in. But at the same time, I'm like just out of school. Like, yeah, not, have the money I don't have a lot of money right. to put to work. Right. So, but then I was like, OK, like next time we get one of those big ones, I'm, I'm going all in. So. And, and how'd you- it go? I, you know, I, I did like a, like March 
2020. Uh, like I did get like it wasn't like I bottomed and thought, okay, like the worst is over. I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna like try to be as emotionless about this as possible and have some extra cash, like just use this as an opportunity. And so, yeah. um, but back to your original question, like just kind of coming up in in the industry. A few years into my tenure at uh, our prior firm, which was Huber Financial Advisors, I kind of learned like I didn't want to be a full-time financial advisor. My really passion lied on the investment side, and we were a, a relatively small organization, like you know, uh, single-digit headcount. Um, everyone wore a lot of hats, but I was like, well, I think there's an opportunity here to grow into a leadership role on the investment side because okay. right now it's just sort of decision by committee. Everyone just sort of like, but no one, no one really wanted ownership of that because right. we're a planning firm and that's what we do and investments are, are really more just the, the vehicle to accomplish whatever goals the client has but i just i love the you know uh being a generalist like allocator type and getting to see yeah. and look at a lot of different things and it's just i find it a very like intellectually stimulating you know part of the job and so I, that's where i wanted to focus my attention and career so that evolved into becoming cio of huber financial and then when we merged with savant uh, in 2020 uh, a few weeks before COVID started, um, just uh, took on the same role there, but just have a greater uh, support system and team there. So like we've got a team of six on our research side um, and, and just all, all great analysts and director of research. We've got a great investment committee as well. And just uh, so the, a lot of just like seeing the capabilities of a larger enterprise relative to what we and we had grown a pretty nice sized shop for an RA. But then when you get into a larger organization, you see like the benefits of scale and having all these dedicated centralized resources that support our growing number of advisors. We've been continuing to grow through other other M&A activity and bringing in, you know, new new team members and partners. And I think it's just they they appreciate folding into an organization where they they don't have to be the person wearing all hats like they might have been their whole career. They can do what they love, whether it's working with clients or some other uh, role, and then lean on our team and other teams for other you know areas of support. So yeah, Sam, Sam yeah. and I start worked in a startup for a little bit. Uh, you know, there was it was a forty five person startup, but uh, you know we we worked there for a little bit, and uh, you may know know it, know it by the name Double Line these mm -hmm. days. But uh, <laughs> there was a lot of hat wearing, even with forty five people, right? Yeah, so it, yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. So. You know, as you think about your philosophy for, you know, being an allocator, what what kind of framework, how would you describe your framework? So the way we communicate to clients is really this um, term of evidence-based investing is how we position it. EBI. And EBI, yeah. Um, and so, you know, really to us, it's just about like doing the research to understand what works long-term for investors. We're not short-term tactical allocators. We don't move in and out of markets and we don't select individual securities. So we implement through mutual funds, ETFs, other kind of uh, uh, third party funds. And then we build the overall multi-asset allocation um, tailored to, to that client's risk tolerance and goals, et cetera. And so we have a lot of different portfolios. A lot of the underlying components are the same, but um, we offer very conservative allocations, more aggressive. It really just kind of, you know, at the end of the day, it depends. Is, on is that risk-based or is that on the allocation basis? Or are they, they go together? Because like some people just think like, well, if I'm more aggressive, I just own more stocks. Like, do you think it's like a vol targeting, like volatility targeting? Less of targeting? more, more about like how much, like what's the appropriate level of equity risk that that someone can have, and and um, not just like enough, like like how much can they have that they can fall asleep at night with, but also like what are they trying to achieve, and what rate of return do they need long term to get there? Because it's so kind of capacity and tolerance together, but. Um, so, but we offer a lot of different, I call flavors of, of models and portfolios that our advisors can use. Cause we, we obviously have the conservative to aggressive and that's more of your risk based, yeah. but then even within those kind of risk buckets, there's some options and levers that advisors can pull for their clients based on, um, preferences around liquidity or preferences around, um, sustainability, uh, uh topics. And so we've got like different versions depending on like, you know, if someone wants only daily liquid investments in their portfolio, we've got models that support that. If they want an ESG tilt, we can do that as well. And so uh, we try to give them options, but do so in a, a efficient, scalable way. Are there any key um, themes or thematic outlooks that are being applied that you're looking forward um, in, in the future in terms of potential obstacles or challenges that could derail some of these, uh, the performance of the models in your well, I think the, the big thing we've spent time on the last several years and, and as well as like, like the, all the work I did on, on the book is really leaning into other sources of uh, diversification that you can add to a portfolio, uh, knowing the, the you know, long term challenges facing traditional 60-40 type portfolio. So it's not to say like don't own any bonds or don't own any stocks, but it's just being like sober about the reality of like this is the environment that we're in the portfolio construction like 
techniques that worked wonderfully for several decades and that have become become kind of a crutch for a lot of allocators, you, we're not going to have that same experience. And concurrently, there's been just an evolution on the asset manager side of different fund vehicles and wrappers and structures that have introduced things like interval funds. Yeah, like 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 things writers. like asset classes that were for individual investors, maybe perhaps just sort of out of range or off limits for a while or now becoming, I, I think the term gets overused, but democratized more. And so it's a lot, it's, it just gives us a, a broader palette to like build portfolios with, 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 with it, which I think is a good thing. And so we've been broadening our sources of, of diversification and kind of leaning into that, carving most of it from where we normally would have traditional fixed income uh, in a portfolio, but we, we also still, you know, we're preaching to clients, there's still a role for bonds in your portfolio. Like this has been a really tough year for, as you guys well know, for yeah. bond investors that are not used to seeing these types of, of price declines. Today's the new low, by the way, that we're recording the new low in the bond market <laughs> once again. Yeah, so I, so I think I, I think the, it wasn't like that we, we timed it this way, but the, the book coming out, we published a white paper on alternatives because we wanted to like continue not just educating our advisory team so they could have, you know, thoughtful conversations with their clients, but just end client communication as well. Like these are, it's called alternative for a reason because it's things that it's just a catch all term that refers to anything that's not like a commonly used investment in the average investor's portfolio. And so things that are a little bit more foreign or unfamiliar, they, they tend to get scrutinized more, or there's like almost like a instinctual like fear to it. Like, because you say alternative to one person, it could mean a hedge fund that, you know, they're, their neighborhood that, that blew up or it can mean private equity or you just it captures the, the full spectrum of like anything that's not a stock or a bond basically and so really just educating hey that's just a word that's why to, i prefer non-traditional yeah and, and i think it, as much as i i wish there was a better word i i, I joke that like my mission is to make alternatives less alternative okay. because i think just using that catch-all phrase does a disservice i think it's more about like you can't just say they're good or bad it's because it, it depends on what you're talking about and, like and, a, hedge and fund, a hedge fund could be hedged. It could just be yeah. levered equity. Well, I, 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 I always found it silly right. that there's like long only um, equity hedge funds out there. Like, well, why are you a hedge? Right. <laughs> it's yeah. in the name. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah. So it's 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 really like, does the investment align with the like the investor's goals, preferences, um, things like that? And, 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 and just trying to um, build the most robust portfolio we can. So we, we like the interval fund wrapper. I think that's a nice... For, for folks that are accustomed to like daily liquid mutual funds ETF, it's almost like a nice gateway into some less liquid asset classes where they don't have to deal with K1s or 10-year lockups. It's like people sometimes assume there's like a binary liquidity choice. It's like you can trade it daily or it's yeah. locked up for a decade. There's some interesting opportunities in that kind of middle ground that I think are a little bit more appealing to the average like income oriented investor. Yeah, whether it doesn't have the challenges of like the closed in market where it may not trade near NAV, right? And yeah. So, like, now, now the the it's it's weird because the interval fund there's a lot of the benefits relate to the fact that it is so um, familiar outside of the liquidity component, but you can only redeem once a quarter yeah. and gates can go up. If there's a lot if there's, there's more redemptions that the fund can pay out like there's a chance in a given quarter you might not get all your money out um and so i think that's something advisors need to be really careful with when they're introducing these funds to their clients because if you're not really crystal clear about that it just it looks and smells and feels like a mutual fund so they might not be yeah. really aware so you got to you got to educate on the wrapper well, I think it's important to the way I would think about it. And I don't know, maybe this is being naive. It's like, well, if the gate's 20%, that's what you should expect, right? You should always mm -hmm. take that max pain point, right? Like, right. you're not going to get all of it out. You're going to get the right. gate, right? Right. And, and, and most of the time, you, you, the gate the gates aren't there, but right. they show up. When... They show up at the wrong time. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. So so I think, you know, again, not, not every general fund is, is gated or anything like that. But I think but I think it's not a perfect structure, but I think it is a a a great structure for certain asset classes, whether it be certain forms of private debt or real assets or insurance linked securities, like things that can be valuable and diversifying to a portfolio um, without dealing with a lot of the complications with like QP only investments or again, like the high minimums, the K1s, all that, all the operational challenges. Yeah. So yeah. QP, for those that don't know, it's a qualified purchaser. It's a very, very high standard yeah, uh, you have to have yeah. like five million net worth extra mm -hmm. real estate portfolio. So yep. yeah, I mean that that's that's really wealthy people, I would think. Yeah, yeah. And, and our you know we have 
clients of all sizes, but generally like our average client is kind of more your, your accredited investor, which is like, you know, a million of investable assets or certain uh, income requirements. And that's more of who we serve. So investments that, that those are a little more appealing to us because it, it can be applied to a broader segment of our, our uh, client base. So what prompted you to write a book? A, a glutton for pain, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it was, a, a, I'm like a, if you saw like my home office, I just have like investment books like all over the wall. I've just been like a long time collector of like investment books. So it's like kind of always been like a dream um, to do one, but it to wasn't. Put your name on the wall with them. Yeah, and it, but it wasn't something I was actually even actively pursuing. I had started a investing blog uh, about five or six Phenomenal years ago. Phenomenal name. Tell everyone about uh, it. It's called, it. it's called, it's called, guy, <laughs> love it. you know? called uh, Bips and Pieces. Yeah. Um, so what's, what does that mean? Yeah. So for uh, Bips is basis points. So BPS. And so a little play on bits and pieces. Yeah. Um, and so that was something I, I kind of got inspired actually by the Ritholtz guys that are co-sponsoring this conference, Josh and Michael, like there was just this kind of emerging, um, kind of talent, they did, they talent, did the evidence-based investing conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I just saw like all this great writing talent and I was like, you know what, rather than just be like a observer from the outside, I'd like to just kind of try my hand at it. Like as I got uh, more into this like CIO role, like a big part of what the role is, is, is not just like you know, talking to managers and picking funds and doing asset allocations, talking to clients, talking to our advisors, like communicating our philosophy. So you have to be a really effective communicator. And I think becoming a skilled writer uh, is a big part of that. And so that was really the the driving force there. And then after a couple of years of blogging, uh, the editor, my now publisher, um, caught wind of a post and sent me a nice introductory email. I was like, have you ever thought about a book? I'm like, I haven't been, but I would love to. And then, yeah. So it was more of just kind of a back and forth of like different topics. And it was like, okay, if you're going to commit a year plus of your life to like working on weekends and doing stuff, it's got to be a topic that like, A, there's like a need for someone to write about it and something you're like just intensely curious and passionate about because you're gonna be doing a ton of research and reading like and just like thought into this like you, can't, you have to be excited about the subject matter and so when I kind of thought about like where are the pain points in our business and what are advisors struggling with it was this call it 15 to 20 percent of a portfolio that was accounting for 80 to 90 percent of the questions that came up about the portfolio interview meetings because we had you know we hadn't done en enough to get our advisors conversant in a sort of new language of alternatives. And how do you translate inherently more complex uh, investments in a way that that the you know average investor can understand? And so that was really what inspired me to do the book, which uh, called The Allocator's Edge, uh, a modern guide to alternative investments in the future of diversification. I, I tried to go for the record of longest uh, <laughs> subtitle ever. Um, but I can, it, I can just imagine the URL on Amazon. You know, yeah. right? <laughs> but it was a, a really great experience. And I, it was really written with the financial advisor in mind. So that was my kind of intended audience was a financial professional that just wants to become more knowledgeable about this so they can be more effective in their 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 job. So um, it's not like a Fabozzi tome or anything. Right? No, but, I, but again, I wanted to make it like approachable and readable. Like I can read the really dense, like kind of textbooky ones like. Right. Uh, my, my, my investing and Fabozzi. Yeah, my, my investing Bible is uh, Expector Returns by Auntie Ilman yeah. and uh, FAQR. And like, I just, I but, just, uh, I've been reading the updated version. That yeah, the new one that came in. That's great. That's great yeah, too. Yeah, but yeah, like, but if I hit you in the head with Expector Returns, it'd probably knock you out because it's yeah. like 500 pages. Yeah. And it's well, really also, technical. Think, um, well, what's good about the new one too is it's all about it. It was like he called the top in the markets because like investing for like a mid low, low expected low, returns. Low yeah, expected yeah. returns. And all of a sudden now we can have a different reset. But uh, I mean, the, he puts out great work. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, yeah, so it was really just meant to be kind of a why, uh, what and how of investing alternatives. Um, so the first third of the book, first few chapters is kind of setting the stage of like why not just from a expected return standpoint should you be considering alternatives, but also just discussing the evolution of asset management, wealth management, and why there is more options in, a, in, a, in an advisor's toolkit today. The middle of the book is just chapter by chapter trying to cover everything that falls under that alternatives umbrella. So private markets, real estate, um, insurance, linked securities, credit, crypto, you name it, like it's in there. And then the, the final three chapters is really, I think the most important, which is um, implementation, like understanding the different vehicles and fund structures, how do you put it all together in a portfolio? And then the final chapter is really focused on communication because that's where the rubber meets the road. Like if you if you can't get your client comfortable so they can stick with the portfolio, it's pointless. Right. It might look great on a spreadsheet or on paper, 
the best portfolio is the client, the one the client can stick with. Right. So you, we need to like make these more familiar to the folks that we are, are, you know, placing these investments in. And so I think that's really the, the key thing to finish on is just uh, how do you, how do you effectively communicate? So let's put all of that together into um, current positioning, I suppose, if you will, for, I know you run a, a number of different uh, strategies there, different flavors, but just for your middle of the road, your most kind of core central type of uh, portfolio that you're creating, how would that all come together in terms of an asset allocation? How do you think about positioning within there and just you know managing the risk? Sure. So I I, I kind of joke about like because I get the question a lot of like what how much uh, should you have in alternatives and I say look there's, there's not a right answer like what works for us might not work for you and you and your practice it's got to be enough to matter like I think there's a lot of like sort of check the box oh, I've got an alternatives allocation and it's like one per, it's like one percent in gold and REITs it's like well, okay <laughs> sure um, but it's and all just so you can tell everybody when they go up. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. but right. so, so it's got to be enough to matter, but it, it shouldn't be such a heavy allocation that you create a tremendous amount of like behavioral risk where the portfolio just looks and behaves so differently than a benchmark or just like their neighbor's portfolio that, that like, you know, you're going to you're going to have rough patches like alternatives are not a panacea. Like there's a reason we use an ensemble of strategies because there's we I've yet to find the one perfect strategy that delivers you know, excellent risk adjusted returns in every single market environment. It doesn't exist. And so it's about, okay, what are things that will, you have a high degree of confidence are going to work over time. And then they serve different roles in a portfolio. How do you effectively blend them together? So to your question, you know, because we focus more on liquid and semi-liquid, a typical alternatives portfolio will have five sort of sleeves in it. You've got uh, managed futures, which I think has really tremendous diversification properties exactly exactly when you want diversification, which right. is these prolonged sort of bear markets. And there's also been some good research on it being a, a nice um, sort of inflationary environment uh, type type investment. So um, so that's one uh, event driven. So just kind of a different types of like you know, convertible arbitrage, merger arbitrage, things of that nature so where there's sort of a liquidity risk premium that you're capt capturing over time. Um, then you've got catastrophe reinsurance is, is just one of the kind of true un uncorrelated assets out there because it's it's a it's floating floating rate which is a nice feature it's in this massive, environment massive tail risk right yeah, yeah so it's it's certainly not riskless but it's it's just a different risk premium but it's not a tail risk of the market right you know? exactly it's, it's exactly so or, yeah. yeah but so I think it can be a really compelling diversifier though uh, over over a long period of time and then um, real assets so we get our real estate exposure through publicly traded REITs. Um, but uh, rounding out that kind of real asset allocation, uh, we use an interval fund, um, and that gets us access to infrastructure, farmland, timberlands, with some of the more complementary um, income-producing real asset classes, and then direct lending. Um, so floating rate, middle market direct lending is uh, another area that we allocate to as well. Okay. Um, and so when you when you're having these conversations with your with your in clients or the advisors, um, what is the biggest pushback you hear these days? I'm saying September of 2022, you know, and as you think about it, what has been some of the biggest pushback you've got? I mean, we've, we finally got some vol in markets, right? Yeah. So what are you hearing on that side? I really all the I think all the focus and attention in, in review meetings is on the bond side because it's such an anomalous period for your, your balanced investor that just assumed like stocks down, bonds up. Yep. And that there's like this like structural negative correlation between the two assets. Um, and that's not the case it's, in all, in all environments. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've got these changing relationships. And I think just like this, like un, because uh, the relative move in rates, even though it's, it's coming off a low base, it's like just surprising to people how much price movement there is. Uh, and just like so I think I think that the fact that we've been kind of, you know, beating the drum a little bit on alternatives and, and communicating why we own that ahead of time yeah. and that we're not just reacting to what's happening in bonds and now adding all it's yeah. like they've been there and and to be frank like uh, like things like managed futures that has struggled for a number of years like reinsurance like Commodities, we had been like we had been defending them for a while right. and so it's a, almost a little bit of like vindication in a way it's like like again like for for this is why we encourage you to stick with these even though they were kind of tough to hold for a while they're bearing they're bearing fruit now uh, they're, they're doing exactly what we hope they do in a portfolio, which is adding sources of return that are not being as impacted by what's happening in the bulk of your portfolio, 
right now. And so uh, it's, that, that's been, I think the, the fact that we were giving the book to clients, like publishing the white paper, like earlier this year, I think just kind of helping clients get comfortable with this allocation, knowing it's going to play a pretty important part of their you know portfolio going forward. You know, so, um, but uh, yeah, so I, I think just getting, you know, reinforcing the role of bonds, because uh, that, that is coming up, like, why should I still own fixed income if rates are going to continue, if Fed's going to continue to hike? And so I think just reminding folks like, hey, we get a deep recession, yeah. bonds are going to be your best friend yeah, again. You know what I, I, what I would pull out is here's the chart of 1994. This mm -hmm. is worse. <laughs> now, the returns are obviously worse, but I would just put the yield differential out there and, you know, huh? Maybe I've done this with a client, Phil. Who knows? Uh, but the thing is, is that this is the biggest move in yields that we've seen since yeah. 94. And it's even worse than 94, you know. Um, and so uh, then what I show them is here's 95, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? It does end at some point. But now we have a reset and we can look forward. Yeah. We can look at yields and, and we see that they offer some of the best yields we've seen since actually 2010. And that's what we're, we're telling clients is I, I wrote a blog post a few weeks ago it was a bond, bonds and investors best frenemy because it's like everyone hates fixed income now yeah. uh because it's just surprised but, them. but they hated it when the yields were low and they were staking yeah money, but and now so the it's like low, right? it's like hey like let, let's you know this hasn't been a fun year for for bonds the silver lining is that yields are a lot higher you're going to earn a lot more income going forward the worst if you're a retiree the worst thing that could have happened was just yield staying you know, historically low forever. Like we, we need and want them to go up so you can earn more long-term income because that's the biggest, again, like 90 plus percent of your total return in fixed income is going to come from long-term, yep. you know, uh, distributions. And so um, so there's that and, and just saying, hey, there's actually room for bonds to appreciate in price again, whereas there wasn't that before. So again, like if you, 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 you got to think about the whole portfolio and we've had, we're in a bear market in stocks, it could get a lot worse if we get into a really deep recession. You're going to want that fixed income because as much as the Fed's hiking now, who knows, maybe they're cutting next year. Yeah. We don't know these things ahead of time. And so I think just like, I think it's been helpful to kind of illustrate, like, look, it, we're, we're all in the same boat together, but we, now is not the time to be exiting fixed income. <laughs> um, so, and then, and then on the equity side, it's, you know, we've we're intentionally long-term structurally tilted to value. Um, just 20, 20, evidence based. Yeah, right? yeah that's right. just our, our approach. Twenty tens were tough. Yeah. Uh, value was extremely out of favor. Yep. Now it's it's having a little bit of a relative resurgence, and so it's not like our equity portfolios are you know doing great this year. But I think like better than you know the the kind of you know common benchmarks and stuff. Having that value bias finally starting to pay off, and I think we could be at the beginning of sort of a you know kind of long term. You know these cycles can be very very long, and as much as growth was you know. Where, where everything was at and same with like us only was the place to be in the 2020s like every decade it rarely looks like the prior one yeah. and so you want to try to like again we're not market timers we don't do a lot of tactical adjustments but i think if anything we have a higher degree of conviction in our strategic tilts today than we ever have both on in the amount of international diversification that we have as well as um that value bias yeah, how do you deal with the home country bias since we're talking about biases i know you're a behavioral guy too right so how do you deal with that, especially in the face of what you just said, how the U.S. was the place to be in the 2010s, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with that? And, you know, I've heard advisors, you know, from our client base just say, why do I own this international stuff? Yeah. Why do I own this emerging stuff? You know, it doesn't ever seem to work. Then when the stock market goes down in the U.S., it goes down, too. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with that and this over-concentration of allocation? It's tough. Have? I would say that that's one of the tougher challenges that advisors have is, is – uh, getting clients like excited about owning international stocks. It's like, at least anecdotally from what I've heard, like defending the value tilt was a lot easier in tough times <laughs> than defending international for whatever reason. Um, and I think it's helpful to a, just kind of walk clients through like, what are the building blocks of long-term returns for stocks, dividend yield, earnings growth, right. and you know, and, the price and, and multiples. And, the price and pay, so right. I think it's just like, like show, okay, we've got a dividend advantage to start with in international. And you have the potential for just value, you know, re mean reversion and valuations. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of helpful to paint a picture. And then also just like, again, we, we have short, short memories. Every, everyone remembers the term lost decade for the S&P. If you were a globally diversified in equity investor in the 2000s, you didn't have lost decade. You didn't have great returns, but you didn't lose money. Yeah. And so it's like more about like, hey, we're, we're diversifying globally, not because we're making a huge prediction of outperformances for diversification. We're trying to minimize the chance of a 10-year period where you have nothing to show for it. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of 
pre, you know, preaching them both from a risk management standpoint as well as like a long-term valuation opportunity as well. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the the challenge in, in talking to clients about uh, international um, assets, but what are some of the, the toughest conversations that you find yourself having with, with clients? Is it just when the market's down or is it because they're looking for perhaps un- realistic expectations from you know from their advisor or is it just because sometimes they they want a certain asset class in their portfolio that you don't see favorably less of that you know um our, our clients are they, they come to us because they want to delegate um so we, we you know obviously like any any firm we have clients that have kind of like side accounts or maybe they're you know doing some stock picking or whatever and that's fine i think that's actually a that's, that's one of the things I've done a 180 on in my career was I used to be like, well, we should be managing all of it. And why are you wasting your time doing it? I think it's like, a, it's, a, it's a release valve. Yeah. Um, like actually like it's entertaining for them it's too, entertainment. Like, yeah. and, and if it, if, if it's 2% of their portfolio, yeah. but it occupies like 50% of like their energy uh, <laughs> when investments, they don't pay attention to the long-term like right. serious money and they just kind of let it do its thing. I always joke like one of the like, crypto is a good thing too. Like if you just put a little bit of, money in crypto with like you know four or five times volatility of stocks yeah. that's what on a relative doing. basis your stocks kind of seem like oh man these things don't really move around a lot it's all all relative so um because it's like that old joke well not anymore because of this year but it used to be like the bad day for stocks is a bad year for bonds yep. and it's like well a bad a bad year for stocks is like a bad weekend for crypto yeah, right <laughs> so as you see the the kind of developing trends and especially as you're doing your research for the alternatives what are you seeing as kind of potentially new areas on the alt side, right? So you've kind of hit the tradition. I know there's more people talking farmland and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I was just talking to Meb Favor, right? You yeah, know, yeah. Like he's, uh, so he's a big guy. farm guy. Yeah, yeah and, and he, he's a big fan of all this international stuff too, and he's a great dude as well. But yeah, you put it all to, yeah, you put it all together. Like, where do you see some of these, you know, kind of the future of some of the alternatives? We're, we're future proof, right? Yeah. yeah. So what do you think? You know, there's, um, I would say more and more, exploration of like kind of true private markets um groups like iCapital case other platforms kind of built for the wealth management audience or again they're not the easiest investments to allocate to both from a diligence standpoint and subscriptions and like the the complexities but these you know technology platforms are helping make the experience easier just like digital subscriptions and helping with sourcing and due diligence it's a, it's a pain I, to fill out subscription doc is so private placement it yeah is, yeah so i i think it's like again it's never going to be as easy as like punching in like a ticker symbol at schwab but at the end of the day i think i think they're they're, they're helping digitize a historically manual experience and and solving for some of the other pain points around edu- education and um you know so i say so i think i think you'll continue to see uh advisors introduce private capital into portfolios. Some things will be qualified purchaser investments. Others will be accredited investor requirements. But I think that that's a trend that's got, I think, a long-term uh, uh, you know, trend behind it. And then also, you, I think on the retail side, you're seeing a lot of like fractionalization and things like collectibles and a lot of like almost like direct-to-consumer apps that are coming out that are kind of like um, like wine, like art. Yeah, like, like you yeah. can invest in almost like anything now. Like I had that Masterworks CEO on. You know, yeah, like, like things like that, or like Rally, where like you don't have to go, you don't have to have two million dollars to go buy a painting. You can own a share of it, and so I think you're going to continue to see more and more of that of like these sort of like just like collectible type investments or other things that um, are sort of almost bypassing the fund complex. Um, and just again, kind of going right to the investor, and I think probably like younger millennial investors and others, are, like digital natives, are going to be more interested in that sort of stuff because it's just an app on their phone, and like they don't need, you know, uh, a ton of money to start with. And so I think you'll see more and more of that as well. Unlike one of our guys who collects uh, sneakers, you know, he's got a closet full of sneakers. He hasn't yeah. digitized them yet. So, hey, um, Phil, there, there's one thing I got to ask you. I know you're an avid fan of wrestling. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, we've had many conversations yeah, yeah. about that. And uh, I know you you're uh, religious about going to WrestleMania every year. I went this year in Dallas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always see the post too. Yeah. And, uh, I swear, with uh, you know one of your uh, your your local Chicagoans, we're going to join you one day. You know, it's always been something I wanted to see. Yeah. But give me how you can give me some lessons from the wrestling world and how those would apply to an advisor or an investor. Yeah, I would say like I told you it wasn't gonna be easy. No, on yeah, I gotta. How do I? All right, so it's funny because I people say all the time like, well, you know, it's fake, right? I'm like, that's the point. That's why I like it because it's a form of entertainment. 
and it's storytelling. It's like lie, you know. It's like it, it, Wait, it's, it's fake. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm shocked. Uh, I'm, yeah. It's like a it's a, a variety uh, show basically. But at the end of the day, it's like long term storytelling, and I think there is a power to storytelling. But we all we don't want to invest based on stories. But I think stories can be helpful ways to uh, communicate like kind of dry topics which investments can be like for the average person like they don't like investments no. I'm, I'm white you know we're wired differently we're investment geeks but it, it's hard you got to kind of find like analogies and like stories to take a, a dry concept and make it come to life a little bit so i would say if anything it's sort of the power of uh storytelling so what's your favorite wrestling arc arc you know like the story storyline yeah, yeah story i would like line, just like, like, oh, the, 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 the underdog stuff. types like uh like i would say like my favorite moments i ever went to live are you familiar with the wrestler daniel bryan yes he's yeah. the yes yes yeah, the yes guy yes, yeah, yeah people not if you're not a fan he's the yes guy and he was like undersized guy underappreciated like the hardcore fans loved him because he's like a really good technical wrestler but wasn't built like hulk hogan or some of these other kind of larger than life figures and so it was like this like um really kind of like this groundswell of support that changed their WrestleMania plans. Like they, they didn't have him writ, written in to like become champion, but it was like the fans wouldn't stop like chanting for him. And he had just like this huge, so they literally, I think, so changed his plans. And then you have this like ultimate underdog who like wins the championship at WrestleMania. Like the show goes off the air, there's confetti falling. He's holding up the belt. The whole crowd's going, yes. Like I will never forget that moment. It was in the Superdome in New Orleans. Like that, so that, that was my favorite type. That's my favorite type. It's kind of the underdog. Uh, Story. Yeah. We gotta get back out to a wrestling. I mean, he's getting me hyped up here. Let's just do talking it. about yeah, looking at the passion. Yeah, yeah. So, so Sam and I went to a uh, SummerSlam one time oh. uh, at, at Staples Center, and we were all hyped up for it. You know, we um, we maybe had a couple of adult beverages you know, throughout <laughs> the day. Um, we, we considered it a tailgating event, and we got in there. And it was like a bunch of kids. <laughs> we were like, yeah. oh my gosh, we, we didn't know who anybody was. It's definitely yeah. family friendlier than it yeah. was in the like uh, late 90s. Yeah. Uh, but it was definitely fine. Like, look, yeah, we, were just, like, we, were, we were asking the we kids. We had all our gear. Like, yeah. 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 I remember Jeff Mayberry was with us too and just kept yelling out. Anytime someone went up to the top turnbuckle, he'd just start yelling out, high risk, high reward. And just we'd all start chanting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no, it's a great time. So yeah. we're, we're going we're to have to make that plan one of these days. I like so, it. Let's do it. Yeah. So, um, Again, as, as you think about the allocation job, you know, some people have written, I think it was a, a, a misunderstanding of it that, you know, like 90% of the vol comes from your asset allocation. I think it was the variation of returns. It got all, it got super statistically nerdy on that. Mm -hmm. But how do you think about that when you're setting these kind of long-term, like, you, you know, you're talking about not being a tactical allocator as much as being strategic. Mm -hmm. And so is that from a risk management standpoint? Is it the kind of capital efficiency, the return per unit of risk? What, what, how do you think about that kind of how that allocation works in terms of the alternatives specifically or just overall just overall pie? and you can bring bring alternatives into the conversation if yeah i think it's, it's it's really just like having a, a framework for each of the asset types that we allocate to on, on what our expected returns are going to be long term yeah um because that's you know that's good that's going to be information that goes into a client's financial plan um and and so having those long-term you know expectations and that informs like how we're gonna allocate but we also know that there's going to be constraints involved like we can't you know there's certain assets we're going to hold at all times to some degree we might over underweight you know here and there but we're always going to have that sort of core you know market exposure globally in stocks and bonds um but but maybe modifying some of the subcomponents based on on you know for extremes and valuations or whatever the case might be um, and then really just le leaning on the, the that non-traditional bucket as a kind of third leg of the stool and something again. It's, so it's like kind of like the, I hate to say like the new 60-40, but it's like thinking of the 40 or the non-stock piece, not just as bonds, but as bonds and other things um, that are just uncorrelated to each other. Yeah. And so when you think about that too, like how do you think about like, uh, when I think about illiquidity too, I think about vintages, mm -hmm. right? So another thing about buying private is that you don't want to just make one private investment historically. Yeah. You usually want to be a serial allocator, right? Yeah, and so you know, so you want to do like a couple of vintages a year, whatever your your risk tolerance could take. But you don't want to just put capital to work only in twenty twenty. Yeah, you, you don't you don't want to just do one vintage. You don't want to do just one strategy or manager because the dispersion of your top quartile and bottom quartile. Massive, you look right? at public, yeah. you know, equity asset classes. It's like your your two or three percent difference between your best and your worst. And you know, like times ten for private markets, and so, um, and, and so, it, and it's also still very much like an access and like relationship world. 
Um, we're not getting the first call. Yeah. Yale's getting the first call. Yeah. So I think it, it speaks, if you're going to go into private markets as like an individual investor, I think a vintage program type in, uh, of experience could make sense where you're getting that GP diversification. Mm-hmm. You're getting exposure maybe to things like buyouts, you know, large, small, maybe a little bit of growth and venture and something like that. So you can create almost like a just a, a program with one commitment where you're getting that diversified PE exposure. And like you said too, it's like, you're not going to see much from a return standpoint the first few years, that J-curve effect. Yeah. But then you start to get cash flow from your earlier vintages, which can help support capital calls mm-hmm. in the future. And then it becomes sort of like a you know, self-fulfilling cycle. Um, yeah. Or as uh, you know, my advisor told me on some of these was that, yeah, you know, you're, you're going to deploy capital of like four years, uh, no problem. And I'm like, how did I get called all the way out in like 11 months? Yeah. It's called 2022, by the way. Yeah, you know? yeah. But I'm like, I was like, I thought they were a little more patient, but I understand. Like, go but, for it. But there, know, but, I, but I think yeah. like the, the capital call structure can be difficult for some investors where like to, to not see any like benefit and almost it kind of feels like you're losing money for a few, a few years. And you're paying taxes. So on, Yeah. So it seems like, the, like there's there's back, definitely yeah. more interest in like like uh, like private market strategies where you get more immediate like deployment deployments like secondaries have become popular yeah. and then there's like uh, a number of like tender offer uh, structure funds that uh, have more periodic liquidity to them um, where you're, you're kind of immediately getting into a diversified PE ex- like exposure that's got multiple vintages already just, in they're it they're just raising some more money and so that's why the tender offers out there so it allows more people to get in but yeah you, but yeah you, so you don't have that blind pool risk right? right where you're just saying here here's the money yeah you, you kind of know what's in the portfolio to a yeah. degree and yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. yeah okay well phil this is great i mean I, yeah. it's great to pick your brain I, I really appreciate you taking the time uh I always had a had a good time at our luncheons and everything. Yeah, yeah I missed anyway, that. I'm just, I'm I'm barely I'm never in the city anymore either. I, I'm usually out of our suburban office, but yeah, but um, I think maybe we could make a trip out to see you. But um, you know, again, published author, the Allocator's Edge, recommend it to all of our listeners out there. Definitely a way of of really distilling it down. You do a great job with that. The blog name, phenomenal. <laughs> you know, uh, I I was jealous that that you had it. So thanks for swinging by. We really appreciate it today. Uh, however, before we let you go, yeah. I introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. I, Sam? I was waiting for this, yeah. <laughs> All right, Phil. You, you get your the first person I've seen with a smile on their face as I they risk, anticipate this. High, risk, high reward. Depends, yeah. Well, it depends on what you ask. Yeah, it right. could be. <laughs> we'll see. All right. For, so for our listeners out there, since it seems like Phil knows the rules here, my favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. I'm going to be offering a series of prompts alternating between Sherman and Phil here to list of the top of mind response. And Sherman's going to give us the first one here with negative real Fed funds rate. Uh, it's it's uninverting, I guess is the best way. It's still inverted. I mean, it's still massively negative, but it's becoming less negative. And, uh, you know, since this is going to get released in a few weeks, uh, we're going to have it less you know, as negative too, because I, I believe uh, Jay's going to deliver at least 75. So I think he does deliver 75. So it's getting there. But um, to that point, it was amazing because if you look roughly like four months ago or before the Fed embarked, let's call it five months ago, if they really started hiking, it was the most negative the Fed funds rate had been on a real basis using contemporaneous inflation, of course, mm-hmm. um, that it had been, you know, since since like 50 years, you know, and so it was even worse than the Jimmy Carter era. Yeah. So you want to talk about accommodation? We were super <laughs> accommodative and we wonder what the heck's going on. Right? Yeah, yeah. All right, over to you, Phil, with hindsight is 60-40. First chapter of my book. <laughs> That's the title, yeah. yeah. Pick it up, everyone, Allocator's Edge. <laughs> All right, back to you, Sherman, with uh, U.S. Consumer. Strangely strong. You know, uh, I know there's we can get anecdotes about, you know, um, some of the weakness up there, but balance sheet looks relatively good. Savings rates were high. Yes, consumption's above, you know, kind of income rates and especially the financial markets. But I, I actually have this hypothesis that, so I've totally went on a tangent here. Uh, the, I have this hypothesis that what's been driving consumption this year is actually people pulling money out of markets. And my hypothesis stems from looking at the fund flows in equities Look at the fund flows and bonds. Look at the fund flows and money market. There is not much, right? 
and even these allocations to the other side of the, the, the you know what we can see inside like from prequin and things on what's going into the mm-hmm. owner's market and to me it feels like uh that people have taken some money on the market because the market's down why 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 do i need to invest in this stuff let's go do something so i i feel like you know some of that kind of inflated consumption i'll call it um was driven by this phenomenon now that's a nice speculation. We'll never know if I'm right or wrong, but um, that's the beauty of it. No one can be yeah. right, but it, it makes sense to me. And when we look at it, and the consumer has stayed there, and so I think until employment falls apart, and we see kind of broad swath of job loss, and Phil, you and I are talking about this on the way over here, right? It's like you know, it's not endemic. It's something in tech we're seeing layoffs. We're seeing it in like certain industries, and so um, I think as long as that consumer's there, um, you know, that's that keeps us from skirting the recession, but. We always have Jay and Jay and company. They can always screw it up, right? <laughs> Indeed. All right, Phil Cash. Still negative uh, after inflation. Um, maybe start putting some of it to work. <laughs> if, you've right. got, if you've got if you got if you got a lot of it sitting around, yeah. you know, maybe maybe look for some opportunities to buy buy some uh, some cheap assets. I, that was a perfect time to use rules everything around me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking about putting some cash to work, uh, used car prices. They're decelerating, but they are massively elevated still. So like you look at the trend and I've read some, a lot of people say, oh, it's deflation, deflation, deflation in there. But like take the chart back two years, the price is up massively, right? So, um, you know, I, I think we're getting some more equilibrium in the, in, in the car market itself, but prices are very, very high. All right, farmland investing. Underappreciated asset class that I think will grow in popularity uh, in, in the coming years. Especially with our food issues. And also one, one of the original asset classes that's ever existed. That's right. Yeah. European winter. Best of luck. Best of luck. Uh, yeah. We're rooting for you here. Um, it's, I just hope it's, not a, I hope it's not a nasty cold winter. Because uh, that's going to be very disruptive to markets. Yep. And uh, sorry, it's going to be very disruptive to people. Um, yeah. And that's that's the scary part. So. Um, yep. Uh, spec. You say spec? Yeah. Uh, dead. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't. I don't think we ever see a ma- major resurgence for at least ten years in the spac it'll, market. It'll come back and be called something else, right? Yeah. Maybe, 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 maybe spark if uh, uh, if uh, Ackman gets his. If, uh, if he gets the yeah, yeah, right. Way. Um, I, I think it's spac is the stuff you like put on holes in the wall. It's like spackle. That's spackle. spackle. Okay. Yeah. All right, Sherman. Uh, quiet quitting. Huh. Yeah, this is a phrase that's, that stirs contra- controversy, you know, the quiet quitting. And I think quiet quitting has been around for a long Hell time. Yeah. Um, it's got know, a name for it now. This is yeah. just like, I, I haven't read as much about this. I feel like I, it's like basically just doing like people doing the bare minimum. Yeah, it's like you have the bare mu- minimum number of flare on, right? If you get the office space reference. Yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've had this in every organization, I think, since the beginning of time, right? Some people do more than others. And that's just the way it is. I think they call it the Pareto principle, right? The 80, 20, like, you know, 20% of the staff does 80% of the work. Right. And so this idea that there's this quiet quitting, I'm only going to do the bare minimum. Great. Then you'll be compensated on the bare minimum. Right. I mean, that's what we ask of our employees is the bare minimum. And that's called your salary. You want to go above (laughs) and beyond. There is a bonus. Right. So, uh, you know, there's also the, 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 is it the converse or the contrapositive, but it would be the quiet firing. And the quiet firing, if you've read it's like this, Milton uh, uh, office. They just, yeah. <laughs> just stop sending him his page. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> it. Like you treat people pretty poorly to get them out the door. Yeah. So I, I think these these things have always existed. It's just now we have an alliterative phrase. The quiet firing is an alliterative, doesn't roll off. Take, take their stapler and, uh, yeah, and move, move, move them the to the basement. basement. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, anyway, uh, I guess as a side note someone told me um they met that guy you know um J- J- is his name jimmy james or whatever i, I can't think of his exact name but they, he's a character actor that played that and he said that he can't go out in public for more than a week without someone handing him a red stapler to sign oh my god yeah. well he's, he's a guy in like dodgeball too right yeah yeah, yeah. he's uh, he's uh he's in barry too he's great yeah in the, in yeah his TV right. show barry yeah. so um i'm not the movie recommendation guy or the tv series guy but barry is awesome love it I'm still stuck on trying to find an alliterative uh, 
Thank <laughs> for firing there. Yeah, we're, the we're, we're going to keep it PG. All right. All right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, last one to wrap us up, Phil. Road Warriors. I like to I like to call them the Legion of Doom because I was more of a WWF guy as a child. So yeah. when I first learned of them, they were, you know, because they couldn't carry the Road Warriors name over from uh, – NWA or WCW or whatever it was at the time, but was it Axe and Smash? Was no, it's Demolition. Demolition, and I was actually more of a Demolition fan okay. than uh, Legion of Doom. Okay, but they were they were the original WWF. Ones, or WWF. That was like their version of the Road Warriors yeah. before they brought them in. So yeah. I think wrestling needs more face paint. Yeah, there used, was, there used to be a lot more face Max paint. Looking the was it the uh, the Mohawk as well as the yeah. Double Hawk, yeah. I guess. You well, can call sa- sadly, yeah, sadly, both yeah. those guys are no longer uh, with us. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, there's not, they, you know, there's not a good longevity in the in the. No, it's, it's right. really sad. Yeah, and I was an Ultimate Warrior guy, so I was a big man of the face paint. You yep, know, definitely. Same here. Um, and uh, so, Sam, what? Who was your favorite wrestler? So I was going to say ultimate warriors first and then when you're talking about for the underdog i started thinking about ray mysterio popped into my head yeah, Ray's great junior yeah. i should say and then uh when you started talking about the pre-days when uh before they're at the wwf uh, the road warriors i started thinking about what's his name ronnie the stone fist gavin or something like that ronnie the fist you guys rugged ronnie garvin Maybe, but I think for a while there he was called the Fist, Stone Fist, or something like that as well. Right. I wonder he how many listeners at this point are just like tuning like, out. What like, are these dudes what, doing? You know, like, what, what, what podcast am I on? What am I listening to? <laughs> um, yeah, look, I'll, I'll go down. Dude. Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Love oh, yeah, that was the great. Kid, I was rolling my thumb. Bushwhackers. Bushwhackers. The, the foam, the foam two by four. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, Come on, it's a real. Definitely had one of those. George Animal Steel eating the turnbuckle. Oh yeah. My mom, my mom is like, I'm worried about you. You love this stuff too much, and I'm like, I was like, I'm just like, how does everybody not love this? It's so fun. It was amazing. So anyway, Phil, thanks, thanks for opening up. You know, yeah, this is super fun, guys. I really liked being here. I was glad we got to catch up. It's been too long since we've uh, seen each other in person. So thanks for for having me. Absolutely. So Phil Huber, Chief Investment Officer, part of our CIO series here from the Future Proof Wealth Conference. And he's a CIO at Savant Wealth Management. Phil, how can our listeners, you know, learn more about you or your organization? So, uh, yeah, SavantWealth.com is our our website. Um, And then I'm I'm pretty active on social media. So at Bips and Pieces is the Twitter handle. Uh, And then that's the name of the blog, too. So BipsandPieces.com. I write there. I write for the Savant site. Um, And, yeah, I would love to hear from people. All right. Well, please reach out. All right. Thanks again, Phil. Have a great day. Good luck, everyone out there. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2022, DoubleLine Capital.